This is an ABC podcast. On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. So on the eve of Mardi Gras, an event that is seen as the ultimate party for the LGBTQI plus community, it actually started as a part protest. The first Mardi Gras held back in 1978 was planned as an addition to a morning demonstration to mark the anniversary of the Stonewall riots in New York in 1969 because at the time, the lesbian and gay community in San Francisco were fighting the push to remove anyone who supported lesbian and gay rights from the school system. So the ultimate party that will be tomorrow night is actually one of rights and recognition. But great parties and party culture kind of go hand in hand with the queer community. But it's not just incredible outfits and some great vocal house music. These events, these cultural events symbolise more than just a great night out. The history of party culture from underground clubs and private nights to warehouse parties to early gay liberation parties are important because these events led the way to change that we experience this very day. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, James Finlay, host of Regional Drive in South Australia and Broken Hill. And James, I have to say, I love that for whatever reason, you and I have started this tradition to hang out together on Mardi Gras (laughs) Eve. So, happy Mardi Gras. I love it. Happy Mardi Gras to you too, Rish, and it's great to be back. So, as a man who has some very fine dance moves, who loves (laughs) to party, when we talk about queer party culture, growing up, coming out, for you, were these parties, were these events more than just parties? Yeah, yeah, they absolutely were. Because I, I grew up in a regional area. I moved to the city to study and it was these, it was bars that I went to. Uh, Barry's was the first uh, a gay queer venue uh, event that I went to when I was coming out. And it was really important for me to go to those places and see that uh public displays or you know in private venues of affection and people hooking up with other people and people being able to be themselves in a space that was safe um for me to see that and see that it was okay for me to do that as well you mentioned regional victoria but i think the significance and we'll touch a lot today on things like Pride balls and rainbow balls and pride events in regional Victoria. Because when we look at the history of queer party culture, we also have to look to the future and how that's changing. Have you noticed a significant shift in either the number of events, the type of events, who's going to to clubs, to parties? Have you just noticed that shift in your own lifetime? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I, I think I've been out for nearly nearly two decades, and when I first was coming out, there were definitely uh, separate events for men and women, for instance. Whereas now, uh, a lot of uh, joint uh, multi-gender events, uh, anyone can kind of come along as long as you've got the right mindset. That wasn't really the case um, when I was first coming out. But I think what we've also seen is a growth of queer events in regional areas. And I I think that's something that is also really important. And we'll we'll expand on that later in, in the hour. But it's... Yeah, because if you if you know if you can't see it, you can't be it, and uh, you people should be able to be their their whole selves uh, where they live and work, um, and not have to move mm. to a city to do that. So, other than Barry's, was there a significant party or event, a, a club that was important to you? Uh, look, I actually my first job out of uh, uni was at Midsummer Festival. And that was when I really discovered the importance of queer culture and and parties, going to uh, Midsummer Carnival and tea dance. It was... I'd never seen anything like it um, in, in my life. And it was pretty formative for me um, to go to those things. Of course, the Peel 
Uh, it's been a long-standing. I spent a lot of my twenties at the Peel as an ally. I have to as say, as did I. <laughs> uh, lived opposite you know, the Peel for a while. <laughs> we always say, you know, it's been a big night if you end up at the Peel, and that exactly, was pretty much yeah. the case. Uh, so yeah, so they they were pretty important uh, parties for me when I was growing up. But but gosh, I'll never forget my first Mardi Gras either. And uh, Mardi Gras still is, is is a really important event to our community. So on the eve of Mardi Gras, when we talk about those significant nights, the clubs or the parties, why were they important? Why were they important and significant to you? And are they still? On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker and on AM radio. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt and James Findlay with you as we look at the importance and the significance today of clubs and parties in queer culture on the eve of Mardi Gras. And joining you in the studio, Nick Henderson, the curator of the Australian Queer Archives, and Dr Regan Lynch, who's just completed a PhD in queer party culture, particularly around the years 2017 to 2022. Nick, welcome back to the conversation hour. Happy Mardi Gras Eve. Happy Mardi Gras. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with Mardi Gras. So it is kind of seen as the ultimate party, right? The ultimate event, whether you dressed up like you couldn't think of anything more joyous, joyful and happy. Yet when it started, even though it was you were people were asked to dress up and be a part of it, it actually started from a really strong place of significance and almost protest. Absolutely. So it was part of a whole day of events. In fact, kind of two days. There was a party the night before, which was um, helping to raise profile and 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 money. But in the morning, there was, uh, as you mentioned before, there was a march, which was a, a kind of standard political march. There was a, a kind of a session of speakers, and then the evening. What differentiated this from really anything that had happened before? in Australia at least, was it, it was a, a nighttime street festival. It was a place to come out. They were, you know, asking people to come out of the bars, into the streets. They asked people to dress up. So it was a real opportunity to, to come and both to celebrate but also to protest. Nick, how much do we know about uh, queer partying before Mardi Gras? Because mm. queer people were still around before Mardi Gras. We talk about Mardi Gras as being like it a, was the, the, the defining the start, moment, yeah, defining yeah. moment. But how did people yeah. party and get together before that? Oh, look, there is a huge amount that we do know about that time, and often what we find. I mean, Mardi Gras was really ten years after the birth of the movement in Australia. The first, uh, I guess, gay community organisation that was really advocating for rights was set up in 1969 in Canberra, of all places. Um, but you have this long tradition of private parties. Uh, you also have the the often the sidebars or the back bars, which were where uh, camp people, as the word was used back then, instead of gay, where they congregated. I but, haven't heard that term in so long. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, look, and, and those places, you know, if you go back into the 60s, you know, they, there was 6 o'clock closing or 10 o'clock closing in New South Wales. So you had this kind of moment of you could only, you know, have a few drinks there after work and then you had to go somewhere else. And so people organised private parties. So house parties, I could imagine, would have been a big thing. And who doesn't love a good house party? But that was probably almost a necessity. It really was. You know, you couldn't create the same sort of community. You couldn't show the same sort of affection yeah. in the sort of semi-public private spaces of the bars. So when did we start seeing these kind of big, bigger dance parties that, you know, did they start around Mardi Gras time as well or were they coming before that? A bit before. I guess what you have is you have a longer tradition of both the private parties. You also have private balls. Uh, some of those, like the artist balls, which really started in the 1910s, 1920s in Sydney and Melbourne and other places. Those were spaces which were kind of, you know, they allowed people to, I guess, um, transgress norms, to dress up in drag and... And, you know, they were really hybrid spaces um, between both the, the straight and the camp world at the time. As you move forward, you start getting, I guess, more opportunities, more dances, which were generally um, often with bands or with, you know, they were mixed. And so you see that really coming through the gay liberation period um, in, you know, both in Melbourne, in Sydney and other places. And, and that was also a really great opportunity to fundraise, to build community organisations through the parties. This text is from David and Fitzroy's and it says, queer spaces, even even when mundane are the only places I feel completely myself and feel safe still. And this, it says, after the also party, so as in the the title also, uh, parties done in Shed 14 in the 90s, we'd always end up at the Peel. It was mandatory to sing Madonna's <laughs> Ray of Light. And I, oh. 
I feel, I feel like I've just got home from the pier. Let's talk about, before we go to you, Regan, let's talk about those the shed parties and the warehouse parties because I think everyone I've spoken to in leading up in today says, can we talk about the warehouse parties? Why are they so significant? Well, it was really, I guess a lot of people talk about big parties, you know, the big spaces, the large venues, often community dance performances or significant acts who are singing. Uh, it was really a pioneered by the queer community in in Australia. So you've got places like the Shed Parties, you know, uh, also originally called the Alternative Lifestyle Organisation, was set up to celebrate law reform. But very soon they set up events like Gay Day and they set up these parties. And so they set up warehouse parties and they created these big spaces and they ran right through into the early 2000s and they were huge. Just paint us a picture yeah, of what they were, were like. Yeah, why were they so great? Well, they yeah. were, were massive. Then we're not talking like a small space with a couple of hundred people. We're talking five thousand to ten thousand people in some of these events wow. in in Melbourne. So you just don't see it. And for a lot of people, they didn't even know that many queer people existed. Yeah. You know, yeah. and there was money put into these events. You know, we're talking about significant DJs from overseas, from Sydney, from around Australia. Amazing lighting rigs. We're talking about lasers, community dance shows where everybody's coming together. You know, it's like a mini Mardi Gras. Huge, absolutely. Mm. And people came down from Sydney. We didn't just go up to Mardi Gras. They came here. So why are they no longer on? Because I kind of want to go to one of these parties now. (laughs) Look, it was, you know, it was really costly. Look, a lot of things shifted. And obviously we had different things in terms of, um, you know, the sorts of legislative environments and, you know, safety and other issues. But they essentially they became, they didn't raise as much money and they became more and more costly over time uh, to set up. And so eventually, look, it just wasn't as successful enough, you know, wasn't able to be put on into the future. Nick Henderson is with you, curator of the Australian Queer Archives. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, James Finlay, the host of ABC Drive in Broken Hill and South Australia. And also joining you in the studio, Dr Regan Lynch, who's completed his PhD in queer party culture. You sort of looked particularly at the years 2017 to 2022. When Mm -hmm. we look at the shifts and the key moments, Mm -hmm. what were the ones that kind of bubbled to the surface for you in in your research? There were absolutely massive cultural shifts that happened throughout that time period. Um, We caught the tail end, or I caught the tail end of the marriage plebiscite period and the queer nightlife scene uh, that I witnessed in Melbourne was absolutely integral to enduring that horrible process. Uh, and speaking of out of the bars and into the streets, there was one amazing event at the 86 where Dandrogeny and Betty Grumble led everyone out from the bar onto the street into a, you know, impromptu street parade as uh, Dandrogeny went to post their uh, vote, their mail vote, into the mailbox, just absolutely resplendent in glitter and chul and drag. Uh, and that was just absolutely a beautiful thing to see in a time where we were really being targeted uh, by a lot of very senior ministers in the government with horrible, slanderous uh, things. So, uh, yeah, but other than that, there was the Me Too movement, which kind of swept through nightlife and really uh, led to a lot of changes in the power dynamics Mm. in spaces and following that you've got black lives matter COVID 19 absolutely hammered nightlife spaces uh and from that there was a lot of innovation in virtual spaces virtual parties i don't know if anyone attended zoom parties (laughs) during lockdown let them live in history let them live in history (laughs) sorry to sorry to bring that up everyone (laughs) for me it was mostly drinking on a friday with other people on zoom so you know different sorts of parties michael's called from geelong good morning michael good morning how are you really well what did you want to share oh look let's go back to 1973 when i first uh, discovered the gay scene and my sexuality and I'm originally from Sydney so it was the Aquarius dancers at the, I think it's the Maccabean Hall in Darlinghurst Road it was a Jewish owned venue and I was taken there and I thought what a beautiful woman and I've been told oh that is a woman, that's a man and sure enough when they spoke I realised that it was a man dressed as a woman <laughs> um, but we had entertainers. We had John, Johnny, as he was known back then, Farnham, Lorraine Desmond, Tony Lamont would have performed. Um, a famous Sydney group called Sylvia and the Synthetics. 
There's lots of nodding happening here from Nick. (laughs) Michael, how, how, back in 1973, how important was the party culture for you to to have a venue where you felt safe and open in yourself? Every chance I could get, I was there. I was there in my platform shoes and my flared trousers and my synthetic body shirt and the whole bit. And um, it also helped me. I didn't have a moment guilt about my sexuality. I was just so grateful that I wasn't the only one on the on the planet that was that way inclined. Please tell me you still so, have that outfit, Michael. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> what a shame. Oh, there's, there's a, you know, and then there used to be the balls in the Blue Mountains on the Queen's birthday weekend, um, which we used to relish. Um, I think they still go um, because we were really naughty. We were bad boys. Um, <laughs> Because a lot, a, a lot of gays, once they found a partner, they thought they'd escape all the, um, the, the um, I don't know, the temptations of the big city and be, lead a quiet life in the mountains. And we would head up there on the Queen's birthday weekend and they'd be there in their big crinolines with hoop skirts and that. We'd be there in, in mini skirts and, and uh, fishnet stockings. And... Uh, and lower the tone of the, the, the do no end. So, yeah, that was fun oh. day. Oh, Michael, thank was, you so much. Nick, you were sort of pretty much nodding to everything that Michael said there, the balls in the Blue Mountains, you know, back 1973. These were vital Oh, for absolutely. Michael. And in many ways, like those balls, they'd actually been an earlier group and they got restarted in the early 80s. Um, but they ran, uh, and that was the case in a lot of places around Australia, the Queen's birthday it was was a big event for, for queens, for queers. Uh, and so they were creating these events and they would get houses with friends, you You'd all come together. You'd have events at different houses. Uh, you know, often there'd be things like sashes and other awards that would be shared around. And, and really, they were really wonderful events to kind of come together that we created in community uh, for our community. Sarah's in Mount Macedon. Good morning, Sarah. Oh, hello. Um, I was going to say, when I was listening to the program, um, I just, that was, I'm, I'm as straight as they come. Um, but my youth was spent in gay bars and... Like, we probably hung dancing. out, Sarah. Yes, yes that sounds familiar, Rish. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> Why is it, Sarah? Because I'm the same, right? As a straight woman, as a as a LGBTIQ plus ally, I did. I never went to straight nightclubs. I, I just didn't. I went with my friends and I spent my life in gay and, and queer clubs and I loved everything. Maybe because the music was better. I don't sure. The vibe was better. Everything it was. was better. Yeah. Well, it didn't get touched up. That was good. <laughs> so why did you go, Sarah? Um, well, all my friends, like, this, is, this now sounds really patronising, but all my friends were gay. So I just had to tag along with them. Like, you know, wherever they went, I went. Um, um, yeah, the music was great. The vibe was great. Sarah you, Sarah, you went to those big warehouse parties. What, what were they like? As someone who hasn't been able to go to them because... Unfortunately, I'm too young. So can you paint us a picture about why they were so significant as someone who went to them regularly? Yeah, because there was a lot of effort put into it, like, you know, neon um, painting. Like, they must have spent hours and hours, like, on reflection, just, you know, preparing and having bands. And I don't don't even know if I paid. I probably didn't because I had no money. Like... (laughs) It was, they were an amazing space. Good to hear from you, Sarah, as well. So maybe there's a venue, a particular party, a space that you went to. What made it significant? What made it special? On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt and James Findlay with you as we look at the significance of party culture within the queer community on the eve of Mardi Gras. What's significant about them and are they still as important today? Nick Henderson, the Curator of Australian Queer Archives, is with you. Dr Regan Lynch with you as well. has done a PhD in queer party culture. Before we have a chat to Rachel Cook, 
the idea, Nick, of fundraising, it's been mentioned a few times that, you know, these were more than events. And really early queer party culture was probably the beginnings of... Uh, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing. Absolutely. When you look at gay liberation, um, you know, they're essentially university students. They're trying to kind of put together the sorts of events and protests and other things. But to fundraise, they put on events. And here in Melbourne, it was in the basement at the uh, Block Arcade in the Melbourneian uh, space. And, you know, they were putting on events. They're putting on bands. I think um, oh, Mississippi, other bands, like all these different groups who were coming on and performing also at uh, Melbourne University. Um, uh, there at the hall. Um, so they're doing these sort of things to really raise funds to put on these sort of events. And that continued right the way through with HIV AIDS and putting on uh, big dance parties and balls. Um, are they still, yeah. Reagan, are they still used as fundraising events now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's extremely common now for uh, fundraising events to be held to raise funds for particular community members' gender reassignment surgery, as that's not covered uh, yet under the uh, Medicare scheme. So it is very expensive and people usually have to travel overseas. Rachel Cook is the author of Closets Are For Clothes, A History of Queer Australia. And Rachel, I mean, you've worked at MCV, the, the street press for years, as well as the editor there. When we look at some of the significant nights or events over the years, what rises to the surface for you as uh, important moments in time? Um First of all, can I just uh, say, James Finlay, I went to many uh, Docklands party and yes. I can tell you that they even thinking back on them now, they were mind-blowing. Imagine the most massive warehouse on the docks and as one of the callers said, everyone is dressed up. No one's just showing up in a T-shirt and a pair of jeans. Everyone is dressed up to the nines. You have incredible performers. I was there when Grace Jones fell off the stage. Um <gasps> And so there were many iconic moments that happened at those warehouses too, at those parties. And I think something to remember, the difference between those parties and Mardi Gras was that that they were quite hidden. So, you know, you're in the Docklands, there was nothing happening in the Docklands back then. And so once you got into that world as, uh, you you were away from prying eyes, you know, there were no cameras as there is at, you know, Mardi Gras, there was no one, it it wasn't... um, a space where it was, I guess, you know, open to the public. You had to know about it, you had to know how to get there. And then, of course, there were thousands of people. So they were absolutely amazing. Um, I think I just want to go back just to give a bit of context about why I think that um, free spaces and clubs and bars are still so important, even though I know we might think that, you know, we are a lot more, you know, assimilated, integrated now. But... If we go back to, you know, Val's Coffee Lounge, you know, 1951, it's the first dedicated gay space in Melbourne at 123 Swanson Street. And I'm actually working on a a Queer History podcast at the moment and one of our episodes is about Val's Coffee Lounge. And I went to the venue, as it is today, to the Indian restaurant today. And you walk up a very narrow flight of stairs and I went there so I could try and imagine what it was like as a person in the 50s going to Vells, remembering that people at that stage would have been living secret lives. You know, no one, no one was out. Very few people were out. So I imagined going up the stairs and entering this, this small venue where, you know, it was, was, as I said, the first dedicated gay venue. And it actually isn't that hard to imagine what that could have felt like, opening the door for the first time in your life, feeling like you're in a space where you can be yourself, where you can, you know, drop that burden of, of pretending to be someone else, you know. And, and so I think that's an incredible thing. Imagine what that's like to, to take that breath and be in that space. And even though we have marriage equality now and things, of course, have shifted dramatically, I think we have to remember that although we won the right to marry and the vote was 62% in favour, but it was 38% who said no. You know, that's nearly 40% of people mm. who voted no, and that's not insignificant. So are we at the point where two gay men can walk into, you know, a local pub in the suburbs or in regional rural areas as an obvious couple or two women or someone who's trans and feel safe in that space? You know, I think... You know, there's many places in Victoria where they're not safe um, 
LGBT people at, at all. So I, I think that, you know, if we sort of follow that trajectory, yeah, we've come a long way, but we've still got quite a way to go. Look, I absolutely, I absolutely have to agree with you, Rachel. I, I left Melbourne nearly four years ago and have lived in regional and, and rural areas uh, since, uh, now in, in Adelaide, but I just got here. And I really missed those queer venues when I left. As soon as I went to visit a city, I needed to get some time in a in a queer space because you're just... It's, you're deprived of the community when you're in uh, regional and remote areas. And even though there are uh, events that pop up um, from time to time in those areas, it's it's not the same as having a, a mm. safe space that you can go and be yourself and dance and and meet people. And you know, I, I had can one I of my friends... Can I ask on that, yeah, go. on that then? And Rachel, I'll be interested to get uh, everyone's opinion on this because lots of people... Are, texted in and agreed with me in that saying yes I'm a, a straight ally as well and the reason why I would go to a lot of these spaces and places were because as a woman in particular I, I felt safe right and 100% that's I felt so safe but then you just mentioned James Finlay that you know you you missed and you craved these venues you felt deprived of your community so I probably now start to ask in question did I have any right to be there yeah I felt safe but really, there's plenty of other places where I could have gone and been accepted. Should I, should I have been there? Yeah, well, you're part of the community, though. Like, this is there are. I feel like there are different levels to to ally. You know, like there are there are people that are um, staunch allies and will do everything they can to. Um, support a community and be involved in a community and live with the community and then there are people that will go to a queer space um, for the spectacle and that's mm. I, I don't think that's being an ally um, so you know uh, the, I just feel like I, maybe I was being a bit selfish you know I <laughs> no, <laughs> but, but also it's re- you know it's really important for you to, to be, be safe oh, yeah. at a venue I, I, I went to there, there's a there was it's closed now but a gay bar in Darwin that's called Throb very creative name um and it was it didn't have many gay people or or queer people in it at all um but it did have a lot of uh let's say you know cowboys uh stock workers that would come to town and maybe get a little bit lost and it was important for them to be in that space too but gosh it was it's it's not like going to the peel (laughs) i think when we're talking Um, about allies or uh you know queer people attending these spaces i like to talk about ideality politics instead of identity politics identity politics absolutely has its place but it can also be a wedge that drives people apart and i think when we move to ideality politics as in we are working towards a shared goal goal, a shared struggle that can also bring people together and so i think that you know, okay, I feel, I feel better now. There's no need to feel like you were, you know, taking over the space uh, necessarily. You didn't see my dance moves. I might have been. <laughs> Rachel, what have you seen shift in terms of venues either maybe not being hidden, shutting down, uh, opening up so that they're not gender specific? There's only probably, I can only think of one, like the Laird is still, I think there's no women allowed there. So in terms of what shifts we have and haven't seen there. Yeah, it's really interesting um, how the queer scene evolved from, you know, in terms of segregation, men's clubs, women's clubs, and and how that's really shifted. And uh, I know that when I first came out, I went to a club that was called Pennies at the Prince of Wales, and it was a women's only space. And I felt very uncomfortable going into that space because I was I was against the idea of clubs being segregated. And I did go uh, uh, on a couple of occasions, and and, and it was uh, it was a feeling of being a, a very safe environment. Um, in terms of, I guess you were very aware of you know who the crowd was, and and and, and there were mm. there were no surprises. It was it was pretty much sort of monocultural in that way. But I think that you know. In terms of clubs being quite segregated back in the 70s and, and, and even 80s, I think there was a bit of fallout from the gay liberation movement. There were women who felt like, um, you know, there, there'd been a lot of inequality within that movement. And I think, you know, financially we're talking about a time when there was still, when the pay gap was much greater than it is now. So gay men had much more expendable income. Um, women were focused on 
not just gay rights, but also women's rights as well. So I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why there were clubs yeah. that were segregated back then. But in the 90s, they became much more mixed. And it was uh, also a scene that became very much influenced, especially the underground queer scene, by Sydney's queer culture. So there was lots of performance. You know, gay men's clubs always famous for having, you know, fabulous drag shows. No, performance wasn't a big thing at women's clubs really until we became influenced by what was going on in the Sydney queer scene. And those performances tended to be um, quite political um, and uh, uh, quite diverse. Can you keep politics out of it, I guess, Nick? No, I I don't think you can. I mean, I think part of the visibility, part of that aspect of trying to present your whole self... Um, you know, create a space which is separate from, to an extent, a place where it's celebratory and a place where you can be uh, your whole self means that you're going to kind of try and draw from all of that creative expertise. I was just going to pick up also on uh, the references to pennies because at the moment in uh, St Kilda, uh, at the St Kilda Town Hall, there's an exhibition which includes material into pennies and pokies and many of the other queer spaces in uh, St Kilda and so that's on as part of the um, Midsummer Festival uh, for the next little while so go along and check it out um there's also some um i guess looking at those kind of different spaces you know there is a fantastic tradition of performance obviously drag and in melbourne places like the caviar club um and moving forward the drag king at the star hotel a lot of those events and and groups like the lotus club which was an Mm. asian queer pride um, rachel just while we have you i want to have a quick chat to wendy who's in moorabbin because there might be a little good contact for you here good morning wendy (laughs) Hi, how are you? Really good. Tell us about your dad. Well, he um, and Val, uh, well, they were sort of a couple. I mean, I'm her surrogate daughter. (laughs) And they opened Val's coffee lounge. Val taught ballroom dancing at my dad's dancing studio in Collins Street, Betty Lee's. And uh, then they opened Val's coffee lounge, 123 Swanson Street, where... After school or the daytime, I used to go to Betty Lee Dancing Academy first and then on to Val's until it closed every night. And my dad and I would walk back to the TIV because we lived at the TIV. I mean, we lived with Val's parents for a while in Ivanhoe. And then um, Val had an apartment upstairs at the Tivoli and we had the one below her there. So she was very significant in my life from when I was about... Five until I was about nine, and I kept in touch with her wow. right until she passed away. So, what I've an incredible upbringing! Mel's Coffee Lounge, oh. and it was the most incredible upbringing. Let me tell you. <laughs> How has it shaped you, Wendy? I don't know. Um, it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I knew, you know. When I went to school, like five, six years old, that there were men ladies and there were lady men and that nobody at school knew about it and none of their parents either. So I never really mentioned it, although I did. My God, I did have a birthday party at <laughs> Bells. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a That's so good. Oh. This is extraordinary. Oh, Wendy, I'm going to pop you on hold because I reckon there's probably some people who are going to to want your contacts and potentially some of the photos of some of those parties as well. Rachel, thank you so much for, for your time today. We really appreciate it. And we'll get Wendy's details for you. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much and happy Mardi Gras. Happy Mardi Gras. Rachel Cook, the author of Closets After Clothes, A History of Queer Culture. Adrienne is from Mount Waverley. Morning. Morning, Rochelle. How are you? Really well. What did you want to share? Um, well, as a young 21-year-old, I moved up to Sydney in 1982. And by 1984, I used to go to the Sleaze Ball every year and I went to the Bacchanalia Ball every year. Um, and they raised money for the Mardi Gras. Because being a straight girl, I wasn't allowed to go to the Mardi Gras ball afterwards. So I could go to Sleaze and I could go to Bacchanalia, but I couldn't go anywhere else. So tell us about the Sleaze balls. What makes those significant? Well, the Sleaze Ball was set up in 1982, um, the first one, uh, and it kind of kept on going. It was alternate times in the year, so it was a bit later on. It was an opportunity to... It was a fundraiser for Mardi Gras, but it was also a space which I guess brought in a more um, perhaps slightly sleazier edge, I guess, in that sense. Uh, so people were dressing up often in uh, more fetish gear or leather, and it was a, it was definitely a, a little bit of a more... 
uh, sexier party. One thing that we haven't touched on, I mean, it's, it is great, it's Mardi Gras Eve, right? So it's so great to be able to reminisce and think about all of the, the wonderful events, the key moments, the great music. But then I guess there was also an element of fear a lot of the time. And the reason why a lot of these parties were house parties or underground was either because it was still illegal to be a homosexual or because there was fear from the community in general. Can you touch on that in any way, Nick, in that it was out of necessity oh, a lot very of the time, so. as joyful as it is, the reasonings are heartbreaking. Yeah, look, it, back in if you go back further into that house party period in the pre-1970s, you, what you often see is that generally you would have uh, a couple of women who were there um, to, to some extent as beards if, if the party was raided. You know, there's a lot of stories of parties being raided by police, people informing to get them stopped, um, you know, people climbing out the back windows. And this would often happen with some of the early bars as well. Um, and, you know, it, was, it did create a climate of fear, you know, for many of the places, even right into the 1970s, 70s and into the 80s, you've got places uh, here in Melbourne that were raided. Uh, they particularly liked raiding the saunas. Um, so there was a lot that was going on that created that sort of environment. And in the context of Mardi Gras, you know, the police and others tried to shut it down in the mid-80s because of HIV AIDS. You know, they tried to close it. They said, look, this is a risky environment. And, um, you know, to their credit, to the community's strength, they kept those going uh, to be the party they are today. Uh, Dean has given us a bell from Richmond. You have some personal experience with uh, going to these parties and being searched. Yes, I do, James. Um, I wanted to talk about my most memorable occasion at Shed 14 with the Red Raw Party. Um, it was. It must have been about 92, 93, because Tammy Wynette's Justified and Ancient was the number one hit. And uh, Kerry Lagore came through 10,000 people at Shed 14 on this ship that was about 20 metres long it had a wingspan of about 30 metres um, and that flat, it was sort of a steampunk type ship that flowed through the crowd, the crowd had to pass to get this ship through through the crowd to the stage and the wings on each side flapped over the crowd and it was propelled by um, two people on the back with uh, fire extinguishers shooting out CO2 um, gas that looked like it was propelling the ship through the entire audience. And Kerry Lagore was deposited on the stage and the crowd erupted as she sang Justified and Ancient. Um, and at the conclusion of the number, um, I had a tool belt on and a little plastic fist full of lollies and I pulled it out of my tool belt and started handing it around to, to my friends, handing these lollies around to my friends. And before I knew it, I had three plainclothes police tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to come outside, which I um, obeyed and went outside and then offered them a lolly and uh, a couple of them recoiled. By this time, there were six police around me. Um, but they very soon realised that all I was doing was handing out candy. And were they undercover, Dean? They were plain clothes undercover. Mm-hmm. Now, when they were all together and you looked at them, you could tell, tell that they didn't yeah. quite fit in. But when they were dispersed throughout the crowd, you would never have known that they were there. It was undercover common, Nick? Yeah, look, it, it was probably more so with the big parties, and you'll still see that if you go to Mardi Gras these days, right out the front you'll f- see a whole line of police and you'll see, also see a whole line of sniffer dogs. Um, you know, Sydney is particularly well known for their um, heavy levels of policing at these sort of parties and also the, the use of sniffer dogs, which are you know you can see all through the train stations and other spaces. So, you know, the, there is very different approaches and a lot of issues around that and the resistance to things like pill testing and other issues. So many texts I haven't had a chance to read through, but this one is from Susan in Doncaster. The notion of safety was different for young camp folk in the 70s. I wanted to go to gay events to be safe from prying eyes. I dreaded being spotted by tourists and outed in my workplace. We were vulnerable in those days and several of my friends lost their jobs when they were outed. We needed these spaces to be exclusive. So on the eve of Mardi Gras, which were the significant clubs, parties, house parties that you went to? And are they still as important now? ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour.
on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt here with your Melbourne James Findlay, your co-host this morning, the host of Regional Drive in South Australia and Broken Hill. In the studio, Nick Henderson, the curator of the Australian Queer Archives, and Dr Regan Lynch has done a PhD in queer party culture. Lots of texts coming in for Wendy and reminiscing about Val's. And yes, I did save her number for the Queer Archives, Nick. So Thank you so much. <laughs> because you've actually done a lot of work on Val's, haven't you? We have. So we were friends, um, the archives, which was set up in 1978, you know, we were friends with Val for uh, quite some time and Val had um, a restaurant later on. Um, so we've got some wonderful material from her in going back right to, you know, photos of her dancing uh, back in the 1930s. Um, so, you know, wow. Val's was really part of, there was a whole broader group of coffee shops and there were some <clears throat> ones slightly earlier than Val's, uh, places like Cinder's, Cinderella's, which was up at the top of Burke Street. And so there was a lot of these spaces which were often for the kind of theatrical and bohemian crowd and, and they were really mixed spaces but really spaces that wow. welcomed uh, the camp community of the time. Wendy might have some photos that you, you're going to want to get your hands on. Let's go to the importance now of pride balls and rainbow balls and I know there's an incredible community in Corriong which you're very close to, James Finlay. Yes, I've got a lot of family in Corriong. And just late last year, for example, the rainbow pride ball was cancelled there due to the awful hate speech that was happening around drag queens and story time at the time. I'm pleased to say that they managed to get their rainbow ball on and it was a huge success. But when we talk about the importance of things like a pride ball, James, in regional Victoria, it can't be underestimated. Oh, absolutely not. And it it is so great that we are seeing a lot more of these events pop up in regional areas because, like like I was saying before, it's, it's really important for people to be able to be who they are in the town they live and the, they work. Because um, otherwise young people leave. They leave. You know, and, that's absolutely. Yeah. Like, and, you know, I, I did the same thing. When I was young, I, I wanted to get to a city straight away. I, I, I didn't know I was gay at the time, but I knew that I didn't fit in. Um, and I, I knew that I needed to get to a city. And I think there's, there's, I think there's a line in Priscilla, and I, I reckon Regan or Nick can, will be able to quote it for me. But it's something about, you know, the, the city um, has like an invisible wall that keeps. Uh, what does it keep us in, or does it keep the others out? And it's, it, it's really important that um, people are able to be themselves in the country because things aren't like like things have come a long way, but we're nowhere near as far as we need to be when it comes to acceptance in regional and rural areas. James Bush is from the Gippsland Lakes Community Health and is one of the many that is organising a rainbow ball there. James, a warm welcome to the conversation hour. Happy Mardi Gras Eve. What's important about this rainbow ball for for you and for your community? Um, Yeah, thank you for having me on, first of all. Um, I think, like, giving young people in rural and regional uh, areas like the chance to celebrate their identities and come together and form that community, um, particularly in East Gippsland where, you know, we're also widespread, um, to actually get that community, get that visibility is just, it's so incredible and so, so important to our young people. So what's, what happens on the night? Talk us through what you're hoping for the night to look like. Um, well, this will be our eighth um, annual Rainbow Ball. Um, and usually the night consists of, um, you know, local music artists coming along to perform. Um, the young people can get up, have a group on the dance floor um, and just, you know, be authentically themselves. Um, it's, you know, usually a themed event. So most young people will dress up to the theme and it's just so wonderful to see um, how bright and colourful everyone looks mm. um, in a space that's usually so, Drab. you know, like, <laughs> hidden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. James, you, you've been running this event, as you said, for, what, eight years now. Does it surprise you just how many people come out of the woodwork uh, mm. for these events? Because when I was living in Bendigo, I was always surprised how many uh, trans and gender diverse people would um, would appear when a, a safe event would pop up. Um, I would remember saying, where did you all come from? <laughs> and why haven't we been hanging out? Um, so are you, are you ever surprised about just how many people come to your events and how much has it grown? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, the one we had in 2022, we had over 100 people attend. 
um, which is just phenomenal. The one we held last year um, in the rural town of Buchan, oh, we had yeah. 50 people come along, wow. um, which is just incredible. That's huge. Man, that's almost that the entire population of Buchan, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. People would have travelled hours for it, I reckon. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we provided buses for transport because yeah, um, you'd have that's to. obviously a barrier for young people. But, yeah, people from all over the community, like, um, you know, as far as Omeo and Malakuda, um, also came along all the way out to Buchan to celebrate with us. And it was just phenomenal. I'm really so glad. Awesome. I'm so glad. It's such a beautiful community. I had the priv- privilege of spending some time in Buckingham just after the fires a few years ago and it's a wonderful community. James, congratulations. Keep those balls happening. Yeah, thank you. James Bush there from Gippsland Lakes Community Health organising what will be his ninth rainbow ball. Regan, how important when we talk about, you know, we've been talking a lot about the history of, of queer party culture, but, I mean, do rainbow balls fit into the concept of party culture, do you think? It's a tricky question, isn't it? Because it's a celebration. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I'm talking about nightlife as a whole. We're talking about so many different things, mm. not even just the club or festivals, but the places that you go to wind down after, the places that you're gathering beforehand. Um, and yes, absolutely, balls, fundraisers, uh, places that are outside of our normal day-to-day lives that as queer people we are developing different spaces that are have different values than the ones that we go through during the day where, uh, you know, they may not be as friendly to us mm. and to the people we love. So we build these alternative spaces so that we can have a glimpse of the world that we want to live in during the day. This text that says, I can remember going to the amazing burlesque shows at the Grand Theatre in Footscray back in the 1970s, all invited by word of mouth only, and there were some amazing performers. We've spoken a lot about those moments, those hidden moments, the, the house parties and being uh, fundraiser events of almost the early days of days of not just advocacy, but also of crowdsourcing and and funding events and people's families that are needed. Geraldine Fallon knows a lot about this. She's done a PhD on the history of AIDS nurses in Australia. And Geraldine, in the years that we've spoken about this incredible work that you've done, what would happen on the wards and the almost pseudo family supportive environments that happened in the wards, in particular during the 80s? Where did the party culture almost come in and the club and nightclub culture come in to help and support during this period yeah hi Rochelle it's um great to be with you this morning um and that's a really interesting good question because what I found through talking to nurses who'd worked on towards particularly in the big kind of urban gay centers in Sydney and Melbourne um was that the boundary between the club and the and the ward could sometimes be quite porous um, so you had people coming in um, drag queens performing on the wards, a kind of a family, like you say, a family or party atmosphere, you know, in those places. Um, but also people going out, um, you know, to Oxford Street, to Mardi Gras, um, even sometimes in wheelchairs when they were very unwell to kind of connect with with their community and and um, and their place. So yeah, it was a, it was played a really important role, party culture and party life in um, kind of maintaining morale and yeah. people's sense of selves. You wouldn't sort of put hospital ward and party culture generally in the same sentence, yet somehow it fits perfectly. Yeah. That's right. I I wonder, like, how much of a place, uh, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a a turn-off, but Retirement villages with full of queer people. I, I, I remember hearing talks about organising uh, events for people that couldn't go to other qu- kind of queer mm. events and the, the Oh, there's a whole other conversation in. too. I don't put queer, that on the list, Rish. Queer retirement <laughs> villages, I've got that on my list. But, uh, what I would say is that one of the fantastic events that's happened in the last couple of years is the Coming Back Out Ball. Yes. And so yes. uh, the wonderful Tristan Meacham through his All the Queen's Men uh, 
you know, organisation. So he runs these amazing monthly kind of dance, um, you know, uh, events. But then they have this wonderful ball bringing people who are, you know, older, you know, into a space and, and trying to get them out and creating that sort of community again where they might become increasingly disconnected being in those nursing homes or those other spaces. Geraldine, we don't have the best line, so we, we might say goodbye. But thank you so much, Geraldine <coughs> Fellow there as an academic and has done a PhD into the history of AIDS nurses in Australia. This Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras Eve, just finally as, as we wrap this hour, how important is it to ensure, and I'll put this to you first, Regan, to ensure that we keep these nights, these spaces there and alive and pumping and, and happening and available and open to anyone who wants to go? Uh, I think uh, we've spoken a lot about the kind of identity validation and the transformative power for the individual of these spaces. But what we've uh, not touched on so much is that these spaces are also places where we test out different ideas of how to be together, be in ourselves, uh, be, be in our bodies. New social and political ideas are created in these spaces and talking about the future of queer party culture, it's also talking about the future of culture because these places influence our culture as a whole and that that's kind of why they're also sometimes seen as a threat because these places are generating new ideas um, which can transform society. Um, so I think they're incredibly important to keep as drivers of culture, as drivers of politics and... I think moving forward, you know, with greater uh, acceptance, we also just need to be careful of these spaces, um, I guess, the history of revolutionary struggle, our history, mm. being, uh, I guess, co-opted by um, institutions that are still uh, using the kinds of violence that we have sought to escape. Well, you're heading off on a whirlwind 10-hour trip to Mardi Gras, so we yes. wish you a happy Mardi Gras. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Regan, Dr. Regan Lynch, thank you so much. As always, Nick Henderson, curator of the Australian Queer Archives. It's important for us to talk about these venues, their significance, and to, I mean, for you, you get some, you're getting, probably going to get some good photographs out of this, my friend, if nothing else, but it's important for us to to mark the line in the sand of what they've achieved. Absolutely. And, you know, look, a lot of these places are, you know, the wonderful and celebratory and the material, you know, culture that it produces is is really amazing. And most of this stuff is quite ephemeral. You know, we're talking about it, we're celebrating it. But for most things, for most people, it's just in their memories. It's those things that they cherish and it's wonderful to hear listeners to talk about why it's so significant to them. But often there's not so much. And so, you know, we do place a great emphasis on it at the Australian Queer Archives to preserve this material. Nick Henderson, Curator of Queer Australian Archives. Thank you so much. James Findlay, we only catch up once a year and it's always on the <laughs> eve of Mardi Gras, but it is always, as true friends do sometimes, you know, you just catch up once a year, but you have a hell of a good time doing and it. It's like we saw each other yesterday. Happy Mardi Gras, James Happy Finlay. Mardi Gras. Thanks for having me, Rich. James Finlay, of course, is the host of Regional Drive in Broken Hill and South Australia. Don't forget The Conversation Hour is also a podcast. You can download, you can subscribe to The Conversation Hour. Go to the ABC Listen app. Happy Mardi Gras. Have a wonderful and safe weekend.